This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Crime is no longer just a social and community problem. Today in Auckland, and probably throughout New Zealand, it's a top-tier business issue, writes Simon Bridges this week. Simon, you've been surprised to see crime at or near the top of local business leaders surveyed that um, have occurred since you took over as Chambers CEO. What exactly are they saying to you about it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we survey regularly and um, whether we sort of probe for this, ask specifically about this or not, and more often than not, we don't, um, it always comes up. It always comes up highly, sometimes at the top uh, of our of our surveys. And I, I mean, I think that's just because this is what our businesses are thinking about. I think the, the, the other point around that is it's not just retail or hospitality. I think this is obviously something that applies to a lot of businesses. In the end, if you and your employees don't feel safe, um, nothing else is going to go well uh, in in your business. And I think the other point I'd make in terms of the, the, the business aspect of this, obviously crime is a problem at a bunch of other social and, and, and personal levels. But for a city to have crime that's being reported and that's, you know, as, as the ferry building attack I'm writing about was pretty brutal and barbaric, um, there's big economic ramifications potentially. As I say in the column, if tourists see these things, if it gets reported around the world, uh, that can really have an effect. And I certainly don't want to see that happen. Um, if you think about commercial buildings, we're not as bad as, say, the San Francisco's, but a bunch of other places, bad crime and antisocial behaviour has led to a really big issue around commercial rentals, commercial office, office space, sitting there empty, uh, because the business people who would otherwise take them don't feel safe. Yeah, I was going to ask how this sort of manifests longer term because obviously you've got the very obvious examples of ram raids and things like that. But then, as you're saying, it has longer term implications in terms of what tourism, people wanting to work in the CBD, things like that as well. Yeah, and be clear, you know, I'm not necessarily saying we're exactly at that level. Um, I, I also accept in, 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 you know, the media world, when something becomes hot, they pick up on more of it. But the reality of that is the media can only report what actually is happening. Uh, and we've been seen, I think it's not an exaggeration to say, a spate of serious crimes uh, in the city centre around Auckland, but obviously much further afield, Palmerston North, mongrel mob incidents and so on. So... It's real. And and what worries me is, um, I think at a level, obviously it's hard to quantify this, but minimisation by police. They called what happened at the Ferry Building a disorder. It was much more than that, as I say in the column. Um, And secondly, look at a a sense of leniency. Um, If we don't want those long-term effects around uh, tourism, uh, uh, around international students, around office spaces, Actually, a pretty strong zero tolerance like approach uh, is required. And, you know, I'm, I'm not being tough for the sake of it. I, I think, you know, these are complex issues, but sometimes we over academicize the solutions uh, as well. When actually, um, if you want to keep people safe, uh, police out there um, enforcing law uniformly would make a heck of a, diff- a big difference. So, more funding for the police as well, then, do you think? We obviously just had a budget. I think I'm right to say there was more funding. That's good, you know, and I hope that does mean more police presence in places like Queen Street, but all around uh, New New Zealand. 
In the end, though, what I also say at the columns, I think it's a bit more than that. It's not just the funding, um, it's the the disposition, the mentality, uh, the way police deal with things. I'm not being critical of our bobbies on the beat, as they sometimes are called. You know, they're doing a hard job and, you know, I thank them for it. But I think higher up the tree, there needs to be a real sense. You know what? We're taking this seriously. Uh, we will enforce the law. Uh, there won't be lenient approaches. We're not going to minimise what's happening. We're going to deal with it. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. In her flipside column this week, Dita Deboni calls out the lack of transparency at Helenstein Glassons over its supply chains and climate initiatives. Well, Dieter, in your column this week, you look at the ethical issues posed by companies operating in sort of the fast fashion space. Why have you decided to single out Hallenstein Glassons? Hi, Nicholas. Um, I mean, we all know that fast fashion is very problematic. And in fact, I'm wearing the problem today. This is from Zara. And Zara is prevalent all through Europe, where I've just been. Um, and people are buying things left, right and centre, and they're making thousands every day and uh, get end up in landfill. We all know what the issue is. In terms of Hallenstein Glassons, um, the, the reason that they've been called out is by Oxfam, actually, not mm. myself, but I picked up on that. Um, Oxfam signed up companies, um, Hallenstein Brothers, Glassons, Lululemon, H&M, and Matt Pack and Kathmandu, to an initiative that would end in um, their workers being paid fairly, or the people that made the garments being paid fairly. So Helen Stein's lessons signed up to this, um, but they have failed to come up with the information needed for the second step of this initiative, which is to show their tier one suppliers. So those are the people that send the finished garments to um, Helen Stein's or Glassons to sell in New Zealand. Um, and I found this quite emblematic, emblematic of this company that they're very mysterious. They, they hadn't even told Oxfam why they hadn't done that. They are, I don't know how you've found them if you've talked to them in the past, but they've never given comment to me about anything. They are a listed company. And I just think they want to be able to tell people what they're doing in this space, but they don't want to be questioned about it. And they don't want to um, have to live up to their obligations, it seems to me. This is an issue that's not just unique to Hellenstein Glassons. You look at it from very much a global perspective that, you know, we are seeing these companies are, are like the leading sites for anyone to buy anything from anywhere, really. Absolutely. And as you know, Shine, I mean, you you may know as someone in your 20s who probably, you know, isn't making the big bucks quite yet, your friendship groups, your your people of your age, but, but not just people of your age, everybody mm. is sort of just, it's a free-for-all of buying these clothes from China, mainly from China, made from polyester, bagged in plastic. Um, it's just causing just horrific levels of um, pollution, really, in the making and in the discarding. But China's about to undergo an IPO in America. It is the most popular e-tailing e site in America, which is mm. you know, enormous, as we know. Um, it's a company valued at $66 billion. It's also had a bit of a dip in fortunes, just like um, Helen Stones and Glassons and, e and every other retailer over COVID. Um, they, of course, had a big boom in the beginning, and now things have tailored off a bit, and there's a cost of living crisis and so forth. But Shine looks on its way to become one of the absolute behemoths of um, e-tailing in the world. 
Uh, and that's really a worry. And I think investors need to think about what they're doing in that space. Mm. Because I guess one of the arguments that I feel like some people would make if they were to read this was that these companies provide a product at a low price point that is available to people who don't make a lot of money. You sort of cited, you know, young people in their 20s, you know, are not necessarily my prime earning years. But, you know, to, to put that pressure on firms to, uh, in terms of, of their supply chains and all these sorts of things, could it not result in adverse effects and, you know, consumers who are, you know, your lowest earning consumers may not be able to, you know, buy new products and things like that? I mean, I totally get that point. And as I say in that column, in the 80s, when I grew up in Pukekoe, you had one choice of where to go, Decker, uh, or Shanton, if it was a special occasion. And when these stores, when fast fashion happened, you know, it really did open up a huge vista of opportunity for people to dress nicely at a more affordable price point. So yes, get that. But it's it's a bit like oil and gas, isn't it? Like it's come down in price so that people can drive everywhere, but there's mm. coming a tipping point where the cost to the environment um, is going to outweigh the the kind of the um, the ease with which we use it. And I think, I do think fast fashion is getting to the point of becoming a sin stock. Mm. Um, and in my view, it should be a sin stock, just as bad as gambling, oil and gas, pornography and anything else, because the amount of damage it's causing outweighs the good it is doing. In your, in your column, you mention uh, some of the... Uh some of the comments that Helen Stein-Glassens makes in its annual reports about sustainability, what does it actually say about what it's doing in this area? Um, it does, I mean, a few of the reports I saw were quite, I wouldn't say they're detailed because they're not, they haven't got the actual details, the names, addresses and so forth of their suppliers. But they say, we're doing this, we're doing that, here's a chart, we've got three stars on here, we've got six stars on there. I mean, it seems to me a box ticking exercise rather than anything meaningful mm. because anything meaningful needs an independent view of it. Mm. Maybe not even by journalists, but by investors or anyone else. There will come a point, I think, where analysts and so forth will be asking these questions much more than they are at the moment. At the moment, um, Helen Stone's Glasslands has had that dip. They're, they're coming out the other side. Um, they're a very good company in terms of doing business. They adapt well to their customer base and so forth. But... I'm just looking at, you know, the, this bigger picture, mm. which I think will include them eventually. Mm. Look, you sort of conclude your column by looking at or sort of putting the onus on investors or ethical investors with how they view these sorts of companies. I definitely think a company like um, Shine, a company like H&M even, they shouldn't be in ethical investment indices. They shouldn't be included in them in the same way that those companies we talked about before, pornography or uh, munitions or, you know, oil mm. and gas are also not included. And I think fast food and other other companies are also going to have to be subject um, to that kind of scrutiny as well. So it's just a call really for it to be considered within the ethical investment um, pool. <laughs> Well, well, the offer's gone out to Helen Stein Glassons. We would love to hear from them in the space. Look, thanks for your time, Dieter. Thank you. Duncan Garner is here to deliver his verdict on last week's budget, as well as what it means for the election. Duncan, you've called Grant Robertson and Labour stone-cold, tone-deaf and deluded on spending in this week's column. Why? Oh, because, they, because they continue to spend, like, <clears throat> like the money is... Um, is literally growing on the trees at, uh, in front of their house. They 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 don't understand. They go and cut some stuff, and then they go and re, re immediately uh, immediately go and reassign it. And so it's always spent. 
these guys have got um, $21 billion more borrowing than they said they would have a few months ago. How can that be? Hmm. These guys are addicted to spending. They, they, don't, they think that they are um, savvy, uh, and, but I think they're the only ones that think that. Um, the Reserve Bank governor called for restraint. And Robertson just went across the road and pulled him the bird and said, sorry, pal, this is election year and I'm spending. Mm. And they've left plenty of money um, for later in the year as well. There'll be some tax cut bribe at the end of the year. These guys are savvy. They run rings around National when it comes to political savviness and cunning, you know, and they've got street cunning. So how did National go then in budget terribly, week? Terribly, terribly. I, I think that there was a trapdoor set. Uh, Hipkins learnt from Mallard and uh, Robertson learnt from Clark. Two of the dark arts masters, you know. And so these guys were smart enough to listen and learn. That, that prescription charge that came off, I reckon they did that just to see if National would reverse it. And they did. Mm. Remarkably, they did. They've, they've been through the trap door. Nick Lewis went through it. Luxon tried to catch her, couldn't help, and they're both down there. Honestly, um, <laughs> I don't know what was worse, the $5, the $5 off or the, well, putting the $5 back on. But I tell you what, National lost that one. What about the rest of their budget week as well? Well, sort of I think um, a lot of it was announced beforehand. There wasn't much left to, to announce. I think people need immediate relief now. And a lot of people say it was quite quite, um, quite a strategically smart budget. Oh, I don't know. I, I've, I've never seen so much money spent for so little gain. Mm. You've got to ask the question today, have people's lives changed as a result? They never do. They shouldn't do either. Um, budget shouldn't have that impact. But are people feeling better off today because of the budget? The answer will be no. They wouldn't have received a cent yet. Um, if you have a child who's two years of age, um, you have to wait till next March to get that um, early childhood um, subsidy. Next March. Mm. These people are burning in the street now. Yeah. These people have got mortgagee sales, face facing mortgagee sales now. These people need help now. And wait until March? You've got to go through this whole winter into summer, through the summer, get the credit card bills for, the, for, for Christmas, and then get it in March? More pressure potentially on interest rates now as well? After I think there's huge... Uh, I think their interest rates will go up again. Mm. I think that, um, you know... Adrian Orr's a smart guy, and he'll look at what Robertson's done and said, okay, well, you've punched me, I'll punch you back harder. And this is what we've got now. This is a real tension that's not helping the New Zealand taxpayer and the New Zealand homeowner. Mm, you know, I, it's, 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 hmm, we need to be on the same page here. So a Labour that you say is addicted to spending, National that's getting sort of gazumped well, politically. What, what, what is National? Hmm. What is national? Are they a coalition of cuts, or, they, or 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 does a coalition of chaos reign reign supreme? I think this coalition of cuts might have some might have some um, some grounding actually, because what's Luxon? What does he stand for? What's he going to cut? What's he going to keep? He can't just keep cutting consultants. It doesn't ever. It doesn't raise any money. It's 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 a, it's a complete have. Mm. It never happens. It doesn't work. Where's the money coming from? Mm. You oppose all these things. Which ones do you oppose? Which, what are you going to keep? There's, there's going to have to be an interview that Luxon does shortly, where he's grilled. Yeah. And where he's nailed. There's only 100 and odd days to go to the election. That's close. And national does, National's tax policy is what, thresholds? Labour will pinch that. Yeah. Labour will do those. Mm. They should do those. They should be done in this budget. There's a lot of spending going on. There was so much money that they took the money out of the contingency budgets in the government departments. There was money sitting in these contingencies. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Thank God for taxpayers. So uh, poor buggers. <laughs> like you say, hundred odd days into election, where does this leave us now? Uh, it's neck and neck. It is. Hipkins has got these guys back in the race. They were dead and buried. I think National struggled to realign itself with a new strategy. They came into the new year. Jacinda, Chris Hipkins, Robertson had planned this thing clearly. Uh, they got the jump on National. National mm. was um, looking at the uh, as possible in the headlights, going, um, "Okay, so our strategy was inflation. Their strategy was inflation. It was working perfectly. It was screwing New Zealand families, and it would screw the government in the end as well." And then in came Hipkins. 
changed a few things. Nothing much. It's all around the margins. Billion here, billion there. It's, it's nothing in the whole scheme of things. But the perception is he's a he's a doer. He's a middle of the road guy. He, he's 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 not he's not dislikable. He's likable. Mm. He's he's inoffensive. He's doing stuff. What's Luxon doing? What's he stand for? Who is he? Is he going to make lots of cuts that we don't know about? What what is he? Like, National needs to answer this question and, and fast. Duncan, thanks very much for your time. No problems. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Could rugby tourism help inject life and enthusiasm back into super rugby, writes Martin Devlin in his column this week. Well, Martin, you were able to combine work and pleasure recently as you're in Fiji for the match between the Drua and the Blues. What did you make of that experience? Oh, fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. You know, as I say in the column, it's one of the, the best super rugby atmospheres, um, just experiences that I've, that I've um, witnessed lately. And, um, and, and I think when you, when you see that, when you feel it, when you hear what people have to say about it after that they've been in things, uh, and the fact that so many people that I met while I was on holiday had taken the time out on their holidays to go and do that. Well, obviously, you know, you sparks, you start putting a few twos and twos together and think, you know, super rugby is really struggling. Um, you know, one of the most disappointing aspects to it, you know, week after week is is there are no sellout crowds. We've had, what, Crusaders Blues and, and near sellout for the Chiefs Crusaders. But apart from that, in New Zealand, there haven't been sellout crowds. You know, the competition needs a spark. It needs mm. something. It needs it needs, it needs needs re-energising it. It needs re-pitching it. Needs, you know, it's, it's got to re-engage with its fans. And I kind of feel that, you know, I don't know whether people don't want to go to the games, but, you know, maybe they've got to be a bit more creative around how to get them to get to get to get to some of these games. It's almost like if the fans won't go to the games, uh, the, the game should probably go to the fans. It's sort of what you're pitching here, right? Well, look, you know, you just look at it week by week, and the reality of it is, and, and you know, I'm not being a hater by saying this, but mm. I mean, I've loved my rugby all my life. But the NRL kicks Super Rugby's butt week mm. after week after week. You look at the round of games every week and you look at the NRL and you go, wow, that's a good game, that's a good game, I must watch that game. And then you're actually looking and thinking, well, how much time do I have on the weekend? You look at Super Rugby, you might get one game every weekend, which you think, oh, that's a must-watch game. And then, of course, they rest and rotate the players and they take that out for you. So mm. what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to look at things like, for example, the, the Melbourne round which is the Super Rugby's equivalent of, or you know, try-hard equivalent of the Brisbane Magic round. Mm. And, you know, how do you get fans to go to that? Well, you're going to have to add something extra to it. And, you know, I sort of put in the column about, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a shopping trip to go to Melbourne, you know, you know, a weekend there, hang around buying things, going retail therapy and so forth, getting a couple of games. And is that going to be enough to get a whole lot of people together in groups to go six, six eight of us might go on that? You know, the experience being in Fiji was exactly that. I was staying at, at dinner hour at the resorts. I mean, a lot of Kiwis do. It's only a 45-minute ride over to Lautoka to see the Indrua. Yeah. Um, and in a hell of an experience. I mean, you know, when you're a sports fan, you know, part of the memories that you create and keep for your life are the away trips. The away mm. trips are where, you know, those are the ones you talk about. It's like a bunch of lads going away on a 21st or a fishing trip or something. These are the life experiences that you actually – you know, you tag a game to them, but the game's kind of like the reason why you're all getting together, but it's sure. not the reason why you're all getting together. I just think rugby just got to start thinking outside the square. At the moment, mate, all they do is they have this product and they just they still are just enveloped in their own arrogance where they think, here it is, people are going to come to it. Mm. That's not the case these days. And we see it in banks of empty seats, game after game after game. Mm. You know, they've got marketing departments where people are paid huge salaries to come up with ways to try and 
excite people about this competition. Goodness knows what they do to earn their money because it's not working. Yeah, for sure. Look, how could you see this working in Fiji? Would it be something like having multiple games over a weekend? Right, why not? Mm. You know, I mean, you know, again, I mean, better brains than us are getting actually really well paid to think about this. So I don't know what they do with their time because, you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, being in, over there recently, I was very lucky to go there on holiday. You know, the people there work for Nick's. They work for 4 or $5 an hour, you know, and, you know, the injection into the economy of foreign dollars and for, and just, you know, foreign tourists, it's, you know, they really did it hard during COVID, Fiji. I mean, they, mm. had, they had zero for a year or two. And the boss will probably tell you that, you know, because he lives there. And so, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, when I went, which was a few weeks back, two or three weeks back now, it's May. There are no school holidays. So the resorts were barely full. There's maybe a third full in these places. So, you know, you're out of the peak zone times as well. So Super Rugby has got an opportunity, especially around, I think, April and May, to try this, to maximise it. And, you know, getting together with the big players, which are New Zealand, Qantas, Fiji Airlines, um, and, you know, and, and, and using the wealth and the power of these places, why not give it a try? Because mm. this isn't just about, you know, bringing more eyeballs to the Super Rugby game. You also see this as a way of sort of investing in the Pacific as well, the, the totally. Pacific game. Yeah, totally. Look, you know, and you can't just get the Andrua and, and you know, um, MP are having real problems at the moment, you know, real financial problems. They're really struggling that franchise. You know, you can't just, you know, open the doors and say, hey, we want these franchises to compete. The reality of it is the haves, which are us, and Australia to a lesser extent, but especially New Zealand rugby, which is the driver of this competition. We're the haves. we got to do a bit more. If we're serious about wanting to include and wanting to revitalise and wanting to keep it so that these teams are going to be competitive and people at their places are going to be interested in this, because that's the whole point of having Andrua and MP in the competition, is to actually spark it in the islands so that you, know, you can get another wealth of players coming through and hopefully those players go on to pay for their home countries instead of getting stolen by the rest of it. <laughs> you know, but you, these are just words on paper unless you do some practical stuff to go alongside it. And just while I was there, I just saw, well, you know, I'm not joking if, you know, if I say I had 12 people that you know, came up to who were all at that game. We were all saying, wow, I was at this game. They're talking about it. I was thinking, well, that's 12. Add the partners to that. Add a couple of kids. I've already filled half a plane. Well, it seems like you might be on to a moneymaker here, Martin. Maybe one of those marketing companies may hire you soon. Who knows? But look, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Always. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.